On this prequel episode, we've got our How the Grinch Stole Christmas fan reaction, and we're previewing The Godfather. Hello and welcome back to the first episode of This Film is Lit of 2020. Hope you all had a wonderful holiday. 2022. 2022. I'm going to do that a lot. Might as well be 2020. I'm going to do that a lot just because 2022 is weird, but 2020 is easy to say. Whatever. Uh, 2022. uh, Hope you all had a wonderful holiday, however you choose or not choose to celebrate it. Uh, We're going to get back to the show. We had a nice week off. We're back to it with a patron request. But before we get to all of that, we have to give a little shout out to our patrons. We have one new patron this week at the $5 Hugo Award winning level getting access to our bonus content. And that patron is Lost Remote Control. It was all one word. I assume that's how it's supposed to be pronounced or said. I would think so. Because it is those three words together. But it was kind of hard. I had to look at it for a second to figure out what it was. So Lost Remote Control, thank you. For supporting us at the $5 level, getting access to that bonus content recently, most recently, uh, we put out two bonus episodes, one on The Grinch, the 2018 Illumination animated movie, The Grinch, where we kind of talk about that and how it's different and what we liked and didn't like about it. And uh, after that, we put out an episode discussing season two of The Witcher. So if you're interested in those things, if you support us for five bucks over at Patreon, you get access to that stuff. And as always, we have our Academy Award-winning patrons, and they are Paul, Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says, More Fantasy, Please, V. Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all so much again for supporting us at the $15 and up level, which grants you access to... Uh, All of the stuff you get at the lower levels, but also priority recommendation for things you want to hear us talk about. And we'll be getting to one of those a little bit later. Before we get to that, we have our fan poll follow-up for How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right. So on Patreon, we had four votes for the book, zero for the movie. And one listener who couldn't decide between the two. Diane Takaki said, The book covers everything we know and love about the Grinch story. The movie is a bit hyper. Some of the camera movements literally make me dizzy. And it just seems a little too ramped up to be a relaxing Christmas watch. So while I am choosing the book in this case, I do want to give props to the music in the film, to Taylor Momsen's performance as Cindy Lou Who, and to Jim Carrey for going all the way with this one. No one else could pull it off the way he did. It definitely has an energy that maybe makes it not the the most relaxing or, yeah. uh, of Christmas movies. It's watches. a very chaotic <clears throat> energy. But there are quite a few chaotic. I, w- I wouldn't say that a Christmas story is particularly relaxing Christmas. I mean, it has moments, mm-hmm. but it, it is also, but not on the level of this. This is that very late 90s, early 2000s humor yeah. energy. It's It's a lot. Over on Facebook, we had four votes for the book and zero for the movie. Steven said, The book, obviously, followed very closely by the animated version from the 60s. The movie was okay and Jim Carrey was great, but they loaded up too much needless backstory. 
Michael said, I don't like Jim's version because for a Christmas movie, there's a preoccupation with cleavage that is awkward. Is there? I mean, there's the one moment, obviously, where he fought with that we talked about where he. Like, I mean, falls. she was also like always in very revealing. True. Outfits. That's fair, I guess. I guess I was thinking like I was trying to think of like other jokes specifically mm-hmm. related to it. But yes, uh, what's her name does have her cleavage exposed quite a bit, yes. which, you know, I guess that's a positive for some and a negative for others. <laughs> Let that fall where it may. Uh, and Chris said, though, I remember the movie more and even quote it more unironically. I have to give my vote to the book. I read it back recently, and the imagination and heart it has compared to its live-action counterpart is just leaps and bounds beyond what the movie could make. Love Jim's performance, though. Good for him. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> That's <an> interesting. <laughs> Good for him. On Twitter, we had 20 votes for the book. Wow. Four for the movie and one listener who couldn't decide. Ben Thompson said, Seuss has always been our family doctor. Mm. Uh, Matt Nelson, cartoonist dork, said, Book, if for no other reason, that I loathe the Hollywood trend of giving your villains cliched backstories. I don't need to know why the Grinch is a grumpy weirdo. He just is. Okay. Okay. I don't disagree, but I also don't agree. And I thought we've talked about it a mm-hmm. lot, but I, I, I don't... Um, I, I don't loathe the trend of giving villains backstories. Cliched, yes, obviously, because cliched is inherently mm-hmm. negative. Um, I don't know if this one's particularly cliched necessarily, but I, I, I do. I mean, I guess to some extent, but um, I don't mind the idea of giving a backstory. I just don't think it was done very well. If you yeah. do a backstory good, then great. If you don't, then bad. I, I don't know. Like, eh. I think the other uh, maybe kind of like sticking point is especially for something like the Grinch there are only so many ways you can expand yeah on on a very short story like that yeah and I mean giving him a backstory is maybe the most low-hanging fruit yes in ways you can expand the story but uh, yeah I will say that you don't need it like I agree with the with the idea that I don't need to know why the Grinch is a grumpy weirdo he just is I agree that you don't need to and that's why the animated one works just fine not knowing um but if you're gonna do it I don't Mm -hmm. if you do it well then I think it's fine Um, Kelly Napier said even disregarding my distaste for Jim Carrey's body of work it's the book always the book, like with most of Seuss's catalog, is a perfect example of how less is more. In relatively few pages, he manages to craft a complete story and draw you into a world other than your own. Mm-hmm. And Shelby Suderman said, I picked the book. This was my first time reading and watching, although I was familiar with the story. The illustrations were great, and there's nothing quite like a writer who's skilled with rhyme. I agree with your point about the who's not knowing about the Grinch in the book. Both the 2000 and 2018 movies struggle to reconcile that, yes, the who's know about the Grinch, but no, they don't try very hard to include him. Mm -hmm. The addition of his parents really bothered me in this movie. He gets bullied and runs away at eight years old, and everyone knows where he is, but for 30 years you don't bother to check on him. That's your kid. They seem put off by him not liking Christmas, but there's no indication that they don't like him. Also, I can't believe that Jim Carrey screaming, Max, help me, I'm feeling, hasn't been memed to death. True. Yeah. 
Um, I will say it is a little weird in the movie that because it does seem like when they bring his like when he comes back into the town or whatever and they're mm-hmm. like, hey, look, it's your parents. They don't seem they're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You're, like it's there seems like there's no love lost there. Or is that maybe the opposite of I can that phrase that saying no love lost always confuses me on what it means. <laughs> if it means <laughs> that. They don't, whatever. Either way, I always get it. But it I feel seems like, a, like they're yeah, like happy to see yeah, him. Yeah, they're like happy to see him, and like there wasn't like a negative, they didn't have mm-hmm. a negative relationship or whatever. So it does seem strange that they yeah. didn't. Again, and I mentioned this in the episode, I think that whole arc of him leaving would have made more sense if he had been older. Mm-hmm. If he had been like, about to graduate high school or something. Yeah. And then and then you can frame it kind of like, oh, he's striking out on his own. Yes. So that's why they never go look for him. Yeah, as opposed to being like a 10-year-old or whatever. Yeah, yeah and for his, sure. And his parents are just like, oh, yeah, well. I guess he'll be fine. <laughs> on Instagram, we had 12 votes for the book and 11 for the movie. This was kind wow. of a rare time that Instagram did not overall represent like no that's an interesting one yeah i'm not really sure how that happened but it happened uh the leap 77 said love the episode for as interesting as the movie was the book was way better a little history about the jim carrey jimmy stewart beef jim stewart did not like carrie's style of acting i wish i could find the proof but i believe he states how much he disliked him on a david letterman episode (laughs) The SNL bit was Carrie's way to stir up the pot, and I believe Stewart actually made a real-life reference about Ace Ventura talking with his butt and how he hated it, which Carrie lampooned in the SNL sketch. It only made sense that Carrie had the last laugh since Stewart passed away a couple years before this movie came out. Mm, interesting. I was unaware of... Yeah, I didn't realize they had beef. <laughs> Jamie Stewart and Jim Carrey. Interesting. Jess said, I had to vote for the movie. While I love this book, this movie just brings me so much joy. I remember seeing it in theaters when it first came out, and nine-year-old me was instantly in awe. Even as an adult, I have never gotten tired of the absolute absurdity, goofiness, colorfulness, and heartfelt moments. I think they did a fantastic job of bringing the book to life visually. Also, Jim Carrey never fails to crack me up. Maybe it's primarily movie nostalgia for me, but I will always love this movie. Uh, Nostalgia can play a strong role in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how you feel about media and stuff like that. Um, And yeah, I I enjoy a lot about this movie and more so than I thought I would upon rewatching it. So I I don't remember. I know I saw it when it came out as a kid and I remember thinking it was okay. I remember yeah, not I having strong rem- I don't remember having strong opinions but on it. I was it also a little out. bit older than I was more let's see, I was twelve or thirteen when this came out, mm-hmm. or twelve, I guess, when this came out, as opposed to nine. And there's that's like right in the edge of the age where you start disliking things, whereas when you're yeah. you know, pretty right, Yeah, that's like right around where you start to try to actively dislike stuff that's for kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got a distance yourself. I don't, I don't even think bit. I disliked it, but I just, but it is in that age where it's not like everything just isn't amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting. All right. How are the final numbers come out? Um, so, our winner this time was the book with 40 votes to the movie's 15, most of which came from Instagram somehow. Yeah. Really interesting <laughs> that Instagram had that sort of wild, <laughs> wildly different voting. 
compared to especially because Facebook twenty to four, and then Instagram like fifty fifty. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. Okay, so we do not have a learning things segment this week. Our episode notes were already very long before we even got to the learning things segment, and by we, I mean Katie. So we decided to nix it this week uh, and just get straight into our preview of The Godfather. What do you want me to do what I beg you to do? Now you come to me and you say, I'm Corleone, give me justice. You come into my house and you ask me to murder me. ask you for justice that is not just all right so the godfather is a 1969 crime novel by american author mario puzo uh, it's the first in a series of novels um but the godfather puzo. i don't know <laughs> i have no I don't idea know if that's how you say it. Um, i also spelled it wrong puzo. in a couple places because i hit the i instead of the o at the end of his last name uh, anyway, it is the first in a series of novels. Um, the Godfather first novel um, is noteworthy for introducing some Italian words, none of which I'm going to attempt to I pronounce. I can do the first one for sure. Um, consigliere. Consigliere. Ca- capo regime? Maybe. Probably. It's cause it's, I don't it's, know. It's, it's capo and regime. Capo regime. Uh, Cosa Nostra and Omerta. Omerta. There you go. Omerta. Took that bullet for me. Thank you. No I'm um, Italian, so I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to badly pronounce Italian words. Like, <laughs> my family's from northern <laughs> Italy, so. You're, like, barely Italian, I feel like. I'm really not. My family has a, a whole village is, like, all sh- all Shiligos in northern Italy. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that village, like, basically in it's Austria? It's very close to Austria or the Swiss border or whatever the northern border of Italy is. It's close, but it's. It's in Italy. <laughs> anyway, um, so we had some uh, new fun Italian words introduced to English-speaking audiences because of this book. Uh, the Godfather does contain some literary references as well as some real-life inspiration. Uh, the the Corleone, am I saying that right? Uh, Corle- Corleone. I, I always said Corleone. I believe Corleone sometimes, but I believe Corleone is... I guess we'll yes. find out when we watch the movie. Yeah, I think it, I, I <laughs> primarily hear Corleone, but I've, again, and, and as I will state later, I've never actually seen any of these movies, so I'm only mm-hmm. going on like people talking about it. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody in the movies actually say the name. All right, well, I hope we find out then. Yeah. Uh, the, so the Corleone family, which is the family from The Godfather, um, closely resembles uh, another fictional family, which is the Karamazov family uh, from The Brothers Karamazov, which is a Russian novel um, by Fyodor Dostoevsky. 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 There's a famous director, I believe, <laughs> by the name of Dostoevsky or composer or something. There's some there's there's not that many Russian names. There's like eight. And <laughs> so there's a famous everything with one of the Russian names. I feel um, like. Anyway, this is not a Russian novel that I had heard of. Uh, but oh, no, it's the author is who I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's the guy who wrote Crime and Punishment. <laughs> That's oh, this Dostoevsky. Okay. Yeah. I've never read that. Nor did I, I have not either, to. but it's a very famous, you know, yes. it's one of the. Uh, but I had not heard of this one. Um, but apparently the, the like the family structure of the family in this Russian novel is very similar. Because I would have assumed this is just based on actually like 
he just like took one of the five families from New York. <laughs> well, and... I mean, more on that okay. later. <laughs> um, so Puzo opens his 1969 novel with an epigraph that is popularly contributed to Balzac, actually. Uh, Behind every great fortune, there is a crime. Um, which is a saying that most likely has evolved over time from what Balzac's original text said, which is the great the secret of a great success for which you are at a loss to account is a crime that has never been found out because it has been properly executed, uh, which is from his novel La Père Goriot. I will say behind every great fortune there is a crime is I feel like gets to the core of it without. Yes, it is a much more concise way. It's more concise, but also it implies something. The other one, I think, there's a truth that the 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 shortened version implies that is more meaningful than the the Mm -hmm. long one's. Like, hey, if somebody gets a lot of money and you don't know where it came from, they probably did a crime. Like, there's probably a crime involved that you (laughs) that nobody found out about. But just saying, behind every great fortune, there's a crime, leaves a lot more to interpretation. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's it, uh, the first thing I saw uh, that jumped to my mind as soon as I read that lo- that the first part, you know, behind every great fortune, there is a crime is it, it inherently feels like an indictment of capitalism and the, the yeah. fact that behind right. every the fact that you cannot build, <laughs> you cannot build, you a, cannot build a fortune without, without exploitation, exploitation of some sort. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I agree. Uh, additionally, the famous line I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse may also be from the same work from Balzac. The line from Balzac being, in that case, I will make you an offer that no one would decline. Mm-hmm. So it's basically the same line. Uh, Puzo's is way catchier yeah, and cooler. Yeah, mo- modernized. Yeah. yeah. Uh, large parts of the novel are based upon reality, uh, notably the yeah. history of the five families, uh, the mafia organization in New York and the surrounding area. Uh, the novel also includes many allusions to... Just to clarify, the five families was not a single mafia organization. The way that was written, mm-hmm. kind of, the five families were five distinct crime right. families. Yes. Not and all then, one comma, organization. The mafia organization. But, yes. Comma. Uh, in, the sur- in New York and the surrounding Yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify because it kind of sounded weird. Anyway, sorry. The novel also includes many allusions to real-life mobsters and their associates. Uh, For example, Mo Green on Bugsy Siegel. Um, In addition, the character of Vito Corleone was a composite of real-life organized crime bosses, Frank Costello and Carlo Gambino. Uh, Johnny Fontaine was rumored to have been based on Frank Sinatra. You have more on that I do have more on that later. And what you have directly contradicts what Wikipedia says about the novel. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Because, yeah, the, the, Wiki- I got mine from the Wiki- Wikipedia. The Wikipedia page about this novel just straight up says Johnny Fontaine was based on Frank Sinatra. But then you have something different yeah, later. Yeah, we'll talk about so. it. Uh, the novel was well, was well received. Uh, it remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 67 weeks, uh, sold over 9 million copies in two years, so it did pretty good. In the New York Times, Roger Yelenick wrote that the book was, quote, bound to be hugely successful and not simply because the mafia is in the news. Mr. Puzo's novel is a voyeur's dream, a skillful fantasy of violent personal power without consequences. You never glimpse regular people in the book, let alone meet them, so there is no opportunity to sympathize with anyone but the old patriarch. Interesting. 
All right, let's go ahead now and find out a little bit more about The Godfather, the film. I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string held by all those big shots. It's not personal. It's strictly business. The Godfather is a 1972 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, also known for lots of things, but Apocalypse Now, Dracula, and The Outsiders being three of his more well-known and popular films. It was written by Francis Ford Coppola and uh, Mario Puzo, uh, who, when this is interesting, I didn't realize this, uh, Mario Puzo obviously wrote all the Godfather films, Mm -hmm. but also wrote Superman and Superman 2. The, the you know the original yeah. movies with uh, Christopher Reed back in the yeah I didn't know that yeah I didn't either uh, the film stars I actually it makes sense with the Marlon Brando tie in but anyways um, the film stars Marlon Brando Al Pacino James Caan Diane Keaton Richard Castellano Robert Duvall Sterling Hayden John Marley Richard Conti Al Latiri Abe Vigoda uh, Talia Shire, and many more. The film has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 100% on Metacritic, and a 9.2 out of 10 on IMDb, making it by far, I believe, the highest rated film that we've (laughs) done on this podcast, at least critically. uh, There may be a film close on the IMDb, but probably not. I believe this movie is like number three or two. Mm -hmm. I haven't looked recently like what it's... I didn't actually look at its ranking on IMDb when I... uh, when I looked this up, but I know that it was always in like the top five or, or something like that. Um, although Godfather two often gets bandies back and forth between being in the top, uh, trading spots with it. The third one is the one that's like considered bad, right? Yes. Yes. The third one is the one that's why do they not do the, okay. Top rated movie. Number two. Hmm. It is. What's number one? Oh, it says it's number two, but so mine says I, when I looked, it said 9.2 on IMDb. When I go to the top 250 list, uh, you want to guess what number one is? It's not The Godfather Part 2. No, I don't want to guess. I think you would. I think you. Okay. Uh, Shawshank Redemption is number one. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. But on here it says Shawshank Redemption has a 9.2 and Godfather has a 9.1. And then number three is Godfather Part 2 with a 9. So splitting hairs here. Yeah. I mean, and then four is The Dark Knight with a 9. So who knows? Um... But yeah, it, 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 it either way, it's by far the highest rated uh, reviewed movie that we've done on the podcast. The film made two hundred and eighty seven million against a reported budget of just seven point two million, uh, which actually made it the highest grossing film of nineteen seventy two. Uh, it was incredibly uh, commercially successful. Mm-hmm. It won three Oscars: one for best picture, one for best actor in a leading role for Marlon Brando, and one for best adapted screenplay. Uh, it was nominated for another eight Oscars. I didn't list them all because there's a bunch. It also won a bunch of Golden Globes, a Grammy, and a bunch more of awards. Famously, and I, yeah, I just wanted to mention this because as I was Googling around, I remembered that I like had a brainwave and I mm-hmm. remembered, wait, didn't when he won this Oscar? Yeah. Uh, famously, upon Marlon Brando winning the Best uh, uh, Actor um, Oscar for this film, he didn't accept the award. Instead, he sent up Shashin, uh, Sashin Littlefeather uh, mm-hmm. to represent him, and she refused the reward 
for him due to the treatment of American Indians, and that was her usage in the speech, she says American Indians, uh, by the film industry, uh, and also they wanted to draw attention to the wounded knee occupation that was going on at the time. Um, and apart from this, uh, apart from his acting, Marlon Brando actually was, and it's kind of led me down a rabbit hole, I just wanted to mention it, apart from his acting, Brando is widely known for his political and civil rights advocacy, uh, a bunch of things, but including one of those being he was a part of the 1963 March on Washington, hmm. so... Um, and there's pictures of him with like James Baldwin and and like all these people. Like he was a big, huge. That was a huge part of his mm-hmm. um, advocacy throughout his life was a political advocacy, advocacy and civil rights advocacy. So, as much of an asshole as he seems to have been to work <laughs> with and like on set from everything I've ever heard, and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, seems like he was actually a pretty cool guy. Uh, at least in some respects. Uh, so Paramount Pictures originally found out about uh, Puzo's novel in 1967 when a literary scout for the company contacted Paramount's vice president about the unfinished 60-page manuscript that Puzo was working on. Uh, the, the vice president from Paramount thought that the work was, quote, much beyond a mafia, mafia story, end quote, and offered Puzo $12,000 or $12,500 uh, to option the work with another $80,000 if, if that work were made into a film. Um, so Puzo's agent told him to turn this down. He's like, it's, it's worth more than that. But Puzo was desperate for money and accepted the deal. Uh, a big famous producer from Paramount, Robert Evans, relates that when they met in early 1968, he offered Puzo, again, that $12,000 um, for the manuscript titled Mafia uh, after the author confided in him that he urgently needed $10,000 to pay off gambling debts. Ooh. So <laughs> uh, when he said he was desperate for money, that, you know, he may have had his own <laughs> dealings with the mafia <laughs> that he was trying to... Uh, Take care of. So uh, Robert Evans, the aforementioned uh, producer, wanted the picture to be directed by an Italian-American to make the film, quote, ethnic to the core. Their last mafia movie that Paramount made was called The Brotherhood, and it had done really bad at the box office. And one of the reasons that Evans thought this was the case was that it had, like, a complete lack of cast members or creative people in the in the crew um, that were of Italian descent. The director's name was Martin Ritt, uh, and the main star was Kirk Douglas, neither of which are Italian. Or of Italian descent. Mm. Um, so after approaching a bunch of directors, including Sergio Leone, they approached Coppola because his latest film had done really bad and they thought they could get him cheap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Coppola, Coppola initially turned it down because he thought the no- he found the novel to be sleazy and sensationalist, calling it, quote, pretty cheap stuff. End quote. But then he talked to his friends and family and realized that his studio owed Warner Brothers $400,000 for their most recent or one of the films they had made recently, THX 1138, which is a film that George uh, Lucas is a big part Mm -hmm. of. Uh, It's like a sci fi film. And after realizing he needed to pay off that $400,000, he decided to take the job. Uh, this is really interesting. The Italian-American Civil Rights League, led by mobster Joseph Colombo, maintained that the films... I love that it's a mobster. And it's like that... I'm directly quoting from Wikipedia here in this instance. Um, maintained that the film emphasized stereotypes about Italian-Americans and wanted all uses of the words mafia and cosa nostra to be removed from the script. 
Francis Ford Coppola claimed that Puzo's screenplay only contained two instances of the word mafia being used and none of Cosa Nostra. And those two instances uh, or those two uses of mafia were apparently removed and replaced with other terms, uh, other terms. And Coppola thought this didn't really affect the story at all. And eventually the league gave its support <laughs> for the script. But to me, that feels like maybe I, <laughs> Joseph I, Colombo came knocking and was like, yeah, it's a nice film you got there. <laughs> Kind of deal. <laughs> I like that what he objected to were yes. these two words and not like, and not everything not that like happens. all the crime. And yeah, the- <laughs> I know. That's really funny to me. It's, it's like you're using the term mafia. I don't mind that you're showing the, everything the mafia does. I just don't like that you're calling it the mafia, which, you know, I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> so uh, Mario Puzo was the main force uh, in pushing for Brando to get the role of Vito Corleone, sending him a letter uh, saying that Brando was, quote, the only actor who can play the Godfather. Uh, but they actually considered a bunch of other actors, um, and, and that list includes Lawrence Olivier, Ernest Borgnine, George C. Scott, Richard Conti, Anthony Quinn, and Orson Welles, hmm. which I thought was interesting. Orson Welles, actually, I found a note um, that I didn't include, really wanted the role, apparently, I which could, is funny. I could see that. It surprised me, because I wouldn't think, I when I saw Orson Welles, I was like, he probably was like too old and drunk all the time to care. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen old Orson Welles. Like, he... <laughs> Famously was just like drunk constantly. Um, there's a really hilarious slash sad commercial, like behind the scenes commercial footage of him trying to do a commercial and he's just like wasted. So I assumed that they like he that somebody else wanted him because he's like a big name of it, you know, it's Orson mm-hmm. Wells, uh, and that he kind of just like turned it down or whatever. But apparently he was like pushing, he wanted to mm-hmm. be in it and and like offered to like lose weight and stuff for the mm-hmm. role and like do whatever he needed to, and they ended up not going with him. But I thought that was interesting. Um, so in order to cast, uh, the, the studio was not keen on Marlon Brando for the role uh, and wanted to do a screen test. Coppola didn't want to offend Marlon Brando <laughs> and stated that he actually needed to just test equipment in order to set up the screen test at uh, Brando's California residence. Uh, since it was just a screen test for makeup, Brando stuck cotton balls in his cheek, put shoe polish in his hair to darken it, and rolled his collar. For the actual film... Uh, he did not stuff cotton cotton balls in his cheek. He actually had a mouthpiece that was made by a dentist to create the the cheeks and the thing, Uh-oh. which he specifically did. And I can't remember if I have another note about this or not, because he he wanted um, uh, uh, Vito Corleone to look like a bulldog, like mm, he like, that was like the, have jelly, jowls. like jolly cheeks, and yeah. yeah. And it also affects how he talks, obviously, but yeah, that he was going for the look of like a bulldog was his inspiration for it. Huh. The, the executives at Paramount ended up being impressed by his performance and allowed for him, allowed for uh, Coppola to cast him, uh, or Puzo to cast him, um, if Brando accepted a lower salary and put up a bond ensuring that he would not cause production delays because famously Marlon Brando, very hard to work with and causes lots of issues on sets. Uh, Al Martino, a then famed singer in nightclubs, was notified of the character Johnny Fontaine by a friend who had read the novel and felt that Martino represented the character of Johnny Fontaine really well and he should go out for the role. Martino contacted a producer, uh, Albert Ruddy, who gave him the part. However, Martina, and this is really fascinating, Martino was stripped of the part after Coppola became director and awarded the role to Vic Damone. According to Martino, after being stripped of the role, he went to Russell Buffalino, his godfather and a crime boss, who then orchestrated the publication of various news articles that claimed that Coppola was unaware of Ruddy giving Martino the part. 
Damone eventually dropped the role because he didn't want to provoke the mob in addition to being paid too little. But I think probably more importantly, didn't want to provoke the mob. And ultimately, the part of Johnny Fontaine was given to Martino. So Martino literally pulled some mob shit to get his role in this movie, which is kind of hilarious to me. Uh, so uh, one of the last roles that was actually cast was that of Michael Corleone, and there was lots of contention over who should play Michael Corleone all the way up until filming. There was like a, he, I think the stories that he ended up being cast within a week or two of um, Al Pacino ended up being cast within like a week or two of filming starting. So some other actors that were uh, the studio wanted or were considered for the role included Warren Beatty, Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, Martin Sheen, and James Caan. James Caan would eventually go on to play Sonny um, mm. Corleone in the film. Uh, but Reynolds, uh, uh, Burt Reynolds was also offered the role, but Marlon Brando threatened to quit over the casting, so Reynolds turned it down so as not to cause problems. <laughs> Marlon Brando, again, seems like a pretty cool guy, but also like the worst. <laughs> Although maybe Burt Reynolds is an asshole. I don't know. I, he could have been. <laughs> he could have been. Know. I have no idea what, what Marlon Brando's issue with Burt Reynolds was. So so the ten of cinematographer on this film uh, is Gordon Willis. He actually initially turned down the opportunity to film it because uh, to him the production schedule seemed a little bit chaotic. Um, later he would accept the role and he and Coppola agreed not to use any modern filming devices like helicopters or zoom lenses or other things like that while filming the movie. Um, they also chose to shoot, uh, what they call a tableau format of filming to make it seem like it was viewed as a, like the scenes were shot kind of like paintings basically. Mm. Um, and made a uh, great, uh, strong use of shadows and low light levels throughout the film to showcase like the psychological development of the film. He earned himself, uh, this shooting style earned himself the nickname quote, the Prince of darkness, uh, because his sets were so underlit. Willis and Coppola agreed to interplay light and dark scenes throughout the film. Um, and in the post-production process, Willis would underexpose the film in order to create a more yellowy tone in some of the stuff. I don't know how any of this works because I've never worked with mm -hmm. actual film, uh, not actual like film, like movie film. I've shot on real film <laughs> in college for like, you know, like still photography. Um, but all that sort of stuff is a little bit beyond me in terms of producing and underexposing film, creating yellow to, I don't, whatever. Is this the reason that gritty films are always dark? Is this guy the culprit? I mean... Is he the reason I can't not, see anything no, on the TV? No, no. I mean, he might be part of the reason. I mean, it, it's definitely very influential, but the, but there's uh, a very famous German... Uh, German expressionist films back in the day used tons of... look look. It, I mean, this kind of actually looks like some of the German expressionist films from what I've seen of it um, from back in, like, the 20s and 30s that used highly... Um, I'm forgetting the term now. Um, Chiaroscuro, maybe? It might be the word I'm looking for. Um, where you use, like, pools of light and dark, and, hmm. and it's and, and it can, some things are completely in darkness, and, and that's not... He didn't invent that by far. Um, he, he, this movie being so successful and influential in cinema definitely played a role in how mm -hmm. much and how dark things tend to be these days, but it's not. it wasn't him alone, or, or you know, this movie alone by any stretch. One of the most shocking moments in the film uh, in involves an actual severed horse's head. This is something people have probably are aware of in mm -hmm. the movie. Uh, Coppola actually did receive some criticism for the scene, but they actually obtained the horse's head from a dog food company, which I assume back then dog food companies made food out of horse. Maybe they still do. I don't. I, I, I don't, don't actually know. know. I would imagine probably not that much, but the horse was going to be killed regardless of the film. They just called like a 
a place that processes yeah. horses and they're like, we need a horse head, basically. They didn't go out of there. They didn't go find somebody's horse and shoot it and cut its head. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, just to clarify, it was, it was a horse that was already being uh, processed. It was marked for death. Yeah, not saying not saying one way or the other about, I don't know, dog food's using horses, whatever. I had no idea. Just for this movie that they, they, uh, they were using one that was already dead, basically. Um, so Coppola's uh, wanted to film the entire basically all of, the, all of the movie on location and actually was able to pull that off. Approximately 90% of the film was shot in New York City and its surrounding suburbs, which is crazy to me. I mean, there, there are movies that do that, but it's filming in a city like that. I can't even fathom how expensive it is and how yeah. just ridiculous it is to film like on location in New York City. Like they used 120 distinct locations, which is it's just nuts. Uh, the actor Lenny Montana, who played uh, Luca Brasi, was so nervous about working with Marlon Brando that in his first t- take of their first scene together, he actually flubs his lines. But Coppola liked how it came across as genuine nervousness mm-hmm. and actually uses that in the final cut. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And then the scenes of him practicing in the mirror, uh, practicing his speech l- were later added to kind of... Mm-hmm tie that in with him flubbing it in that opening scene. So that was not scripted for him to flub his lines there. Uh, Speaking of lines, Marlon Brando apparently did not memorize most of his lines for this movie and actually read from cue cards during most of the film. I want to clarify that I don't know. I I know Marlon Brando's there's a, there's whole books and movies and about his career and his acting and all that sort of stuff. So, Mm -hmm. but this seems like a pretty reputable fact. Marlon was also known, you know, he's sort of like the, the grandfather of method acting. He's one of the actors that brought method acting and the Stravinsky method or whatever it's Mm -hmm. called um, into like the mainstream. And apparently he felt that doing a completely cold read uh, of of his lines for the camera created uh, and then using the very first unpracticed take was the best way best way to get an authentic performance i whatever man marlon brando is a great <laughs> actor did a great job and it, it worked so i don't know but it seems like not the case but whatever and apparently he did the same thing on superman which that's the tie-in with puzzo and mm-hmm. superman um, brando plays um Superman's dad. Oh, his yeah. his his not his not space dad. His space dad, yeah. Um, and apparently the set for Krypton was filled with cards pasted all over the place so that Marlon Brando could read his lines. Again, I it's wild to me. Uh, so according to Mario Puzo, and this is from now again, this is from IMDb's trivia facts. So take this all with a grain of salt. And this does apparently you said conflict with something you read. Mm-hmm. According to Mario Puzo, the character of Johnny Fontaine was not based on Frank Sinatra. However, everybody assumed it was, and Sinatra was furious about this. Apparently, he actually ran into Puzo at a restaurant and started screaming vulgarities and threats at him. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, Sinatra was so vehemently opposed to the film that uh, Fontaine's role was scaled back in the movie down to just a couple of scenes oh. as so as to not upset Frank Sinatra too much. After that guy went to all that trouble yep, to of getting get the, the role. role. Yep. Womp womp. Mob shit gave him his role and mob shit took it away. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and finally, uh, there's a bunch of reviews. You can go read a million, but I had to include Ebert's. Um, Always. Which Ebert's is, is not, with this one, it's not, you know, unexpected. Uh, of the Chicago Sun-Times, Roger Ebert praised Coppola's efforts to follow the storyline of the eponymous novel, uh, the choice to set the film in the same time uh, era as the novel, and the film's ability to absorb the viewer over its three-hour runtime. 
While Ebert was mainly positive, he did criticize Brando's performance, saying his movements lacked, quote, precision and that his voice was, quote, wheezy. Uh, Ebert named The Godfather the best film of 1972, and in 2008, AFI did their 100 years, uh, 100 movies list. It's mm-hmm. their top 100 movies of the past 100 years, and The Godfather came in number two, just behind Citizen Kane. Ugh, so the critics put Citizen God, Kane at the top, Citizen Kane. and uh, normal people put... <laughs> Shawshank Redemption at the top. So. Yeah, because normal people don't like Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is a fine film and it's very important and it's not as boring as everybody says it is. But it's still not my fa- it's not my favorite movie in the world. But it's it's okay. It's fine. Um, and and it's very important in cinema. Uh, so yeah, that was uh that was everything we got for that. Uh, we wanted to do remind you that you could do us a favor by following us on all the social media. Uh, you know, and that's how you get your comments read in the like they did in the earlier part of this episode. You look out for those posts, you comment, and then we'll talk about them. Also, you can support us on Patreon, get access to that bonus content, and if you support us at fifteen dollars or more level, you get priority recommendation, which this is one of our Academy Award-winning patron requests from Kelly Napier. That's why we're doing The Godfather. So there you go. I mean, we would have gotten to it eventually anyways, because yeah, it's, you know, one of the <laughs> most famous films in all of cinema, and one that I still have yet to see. Um, but yeah, it, uh, yeah. So yeah, Kelly, thank you for recommending that. We're going to be talking about that in one week's time. Katie, where can people watch it? Well, as always, you can check with your local library. Mm-hmm. Uh, our local library does, in fact, have a copy of this. They do? Yeah. Is it on Blu-ray or is it on... I think it's a DVD. Okay, well, then we're just going to rent it. Because okay. I want to see this, like, in good quality, not okay. in DVD quality. Um, or if you still have a local video rental store, you can check yes. with them. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to keep that line uh, in this. I, I'm sure a few people <laughs> still do in certain yeah. places, but, I mean, we don't have one anymore. No. And I feel like our town is, like, the perfect size. Like It's, like, the yeah. size of town that would have them still. Like, mm-hmm. you, if it's too small of a town, I don't know if there's enough people. And yeah. if it's too big, obviously they're not going to have movies. Well, right. And I feel like we're the kind of town where there's probably still plenty of people who would go yeah. to a physical so if location. We if, if a town like film. ours in the mid rural Midwest, you know, that's like 40,000 people can't sustain a movie or a, a, a movie rental store. I don't know if there's much cho- hope yeah. anywhere. But um, anyway, if uh, you've. Although, if it, my, sorry, just to clarify, I bet there are places where Internet isn't. Like places yes. like really rural yes. places where there's like not good internet to stream. That's probably the places that still have like that's the fair. most successful. Yeah. I just thought about that. I was like, you know, probably in Alaska and like out in the middle of Montana <laughs> and like r- really rural places where internet's terrible, maybe. Um, but if you don't have a local video rental store, uh, as you probably likely do not, most likely, um, you can rent this movie for about three to four dollars through Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, Apple TV, AMC Theaters on Demand, DirecTV, or Spectrum TV. Yeah, I couldn't find it. It's not free streaming anywhere. Yeah, I think no. it was on HBO for a while. Yeah, I believe because I there you was can't, a link. Like, stream with a subscription through yeah. anything. You have to pay to rent it. There was a link on HBO Max that said like Godfather HBO Max, mm-hmm. and I clicked on it, and then it didn't work. But it, it looked like maybe it used to be there, and yeah. then it got taken. I don't know. I was a little surprised that this one wasn't on Canopy. But maybe it's just they maybe it's just too lucrative. Yeah, I don't know. To throw I, people I, to yeah, rent it. it is interesting. I, I'm surprised it's not on something like HBO or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. Or like Showtime, you know, like one of the movie like or stars mm-hmm. or something. I, I would think would have had access to it. Well, it's a Paramount film. Wouldn't it be on Paramount Plus? 
I don't know, um, but I don't know if Paramount Plus has like a separate rental. Yeah, I don't like, know. Like maybe they don't want to stream. Yeah, the they don't want to stream it. Yeah, because Paramount Plus is not expensive. It's no. like five dollars a yeah. month. Yeah, I think they have different levels, but yeah, the base level at least is like five bucks a month. Anyways, okay, so yeah, you're gonna have to rent it most likely, or probably a lot of people own it. <laughs> Again, it's a very very popular movie, so uh, I'm really looking forward to watching it. Really, because like I said. It's one of those movies that I, for whatever reason, have mm-hmm. just never... I've not seen a frame of this beyond it showing up in, you know, clips of it showing up in, mm-hmm. like, in, in some sort of random TV show. Whatever. But I've not watched a single frame of this movie. Not even caught, like, 20 minutes of it on TV at one yeah. point. Literally never. I have never seen any of this movie either. I know two things about it. Then those things are, I'm going to make you an offer I can't refuse... And the horse head. Oh, so I thought it was going to be the uh, take the gun or leave the gun, take the cannoli, because that's one of the other. Oh, I didn't lines know about know. that line. Spoilers. Spoilers. Uh, I'm gonna. I, I'll tell you now. So when you're reading, look out for okay. that line about because I'm gonna will, ask about it. I will watch for the line about the cannoli. <laughs> okay, see if it's in the book. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode. Come back in one week's time. We'll be talking about the Godfather. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books, keep watching movies, and and keep keep being awesome.